Welcome back to Wyoming, my 307. My name is Carla Mowell, and first off, a great big thank you to everyone who listened to my earlier episodes. You may have noticed I was on hiatus for a few months to take care of some family stuff, but I also took some time to reflect and to reboot the podcast with a few changes, starting with this episode. Please let me know what you think. Your feedback, your ratings, and your reviews always inspire and motivate me. For example, like Apple podcast user named Save the Daily, who said, quote, Just like the state, each episode explores a diverse range of topics connected by a common theme. Thank you, Save the Daily, for that perfect description of the podcast. I'm definitely going to use it. Now, could you do me a favor and leave a review wherever you're listening to the podcast? It can really help new folks decide whether they even click play and listen to the show. So now on to the important stuff, what most of us love so much about Wyoming, these wild, wide open spaces. My favorite outdoor activities here in Wyoming are hiking, camping, picnics, kayaking, and wildlife photography, which for me involves a lot of blur and tail. Many folks around here also enjoy riding horses, hunting, fishing, four-wheeling, rock climbing, rock hounding, wildlife watching, and of course all the winter stuff such as skiing and snowboarding. At the risk of sounding like a late-night TV commercial, but wait, there's more! In my research, I was reminded of some outdoorsy activities that I'd actually forgotten about, such as stargazing. I mean, we have amazing dark skies, wildflower viewing right now in the summer, June through August, especially in the mountains. And do you know about geocaching? This is something I used to do years ago, but kind of forgot about it. It's like a treasure hunt. You can use either a GPS or just your phone to look for or leave a cache for others to find. Cash sounds like a pile of money, but it's spelled C-A-C-H-E. And it's basically a waterproof container that's camouflaged and usually hidden so that it's not easily visible to someone who's just passing by. Once you find the cash, you open it and take something from it and also leave something in there for the next person to find. Usually I'll take little stickers or some small handmade item. Geocaching is really fun, especially for kids, but also adults. It's like a treasure hunt. Who doesn't love a treasure hunt? According to the website Wyoming in Motion, there are over 6,000 caches in Wyoming, so definitely look on my website for the link to that. As you can imagine, all these activities have different effects on the land and the wildlife. I learned so much about this from my interview with Dr. Abigail Cisneros-Kid. She's a professor at the University of Wyoming, and she's in recreation ecology, which I think of as studying how humans behave in the wild. Let's listen in on that conversation. I am an assistant professor at the Haub School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming. You study the patterns and cumulative effects of all of our little private moments out in recreation in a field called recreation ecology, which I had not heard of, but is fascinating. So how how do you go about actually observing and measuring the effects that we have on our natural environment? For me, 
understanding recreation ecology, it's not just how we impact the environment, but also how the environment influences us as well. There's a, a heavily social component and a social science component. I use uh, high-accuracy GPS units to map locations of in impacts on a landscape, and that allows us to get an understanding of where people go across landscapes. In addition to having people carry GPS units with them, we ask visitors questions utilizing surveys to understand things like people's motivations and people's backgrounds, their, how frequently and often they use areas, their knowledge of areas and their potential impacts. And then we can see if there's any variation between some of those characteristics of people and the, their recreation patterns on landscapes and potential patterns of impact on landscapes as well. So what patterns and effects have you found here in Wyoming? A lot of my work in Wyoming has focused on human-wildlife interaction. For example, when people um, get out of their vehicle to look at wildlife next to a roadway, like they see an elk in a field and they step out of their vehicle. So we can quantify and measure impacts on those individual species, so whether the species exhibits alert behaviors or runs away as a result of human presence. Understanding the cumulative impacts of recreation on populations of wildlife and communities of wildlife as well is still a challenge in the field. I know one of the things that you've studied is behavior, I guess both on the nature side and on the human side, of wildlife jams which mm -hmm. is something that anybody who's been to Yellowstone is familiar with. <laughs> it's like, wait, why? what's going on? Is there an accident? And then after a few times you realize, ooh, wait, they're looking at something. I wonder what they're seeing, you know? Obviously, people stop to look at wildlife. That's the, the primary effect. But when you dig a little deeper, what what is the impact of, of us stopping to gawk at, at a beautiful bear and her cubs? The research that I've done on wildlife jams and human wildlife behavior was in Grand Teton National Park. I wanted to try to observe and understand what people do during wildlife jams and then the wildlife responses. And one of the things that we found out there is that wildlife are fairly habituated to human presence along park roadways or along that specific roadway that we were looking at. And the most common behavior that people engaged in was getting out of their vehicle and then also approaching wildlife. And as you can imagine, there is a really strong normative component to people's behavior. A wildlife jam happens because obviously there's wildlife there, and then one person stops to get a better look at that wildlife, and it's a cascading effect. Other people see that person stop, and they're like, oh, what's going on? And then they see the wildlife, and they stop. Maybe they get out to try to, to get a better look as well. And that's kind of how those um, events evolve. But is it, do you, do you place a value on it? Do you consider us stopping to look at wildlife a negative behavior? The work that I'm doing, I try to collect and present the information that I find without making those judgments, leave the assessment of whether it's a good or bad thing that's occurring to the folks who, that are actually managing the land. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, you know, I, I guess I was like kind of thinking, well, I was hoping that you wouldn't come out and say, yeah, everyone needs to stop stopping <laughs> and staring at these animals. But at the same time, I feel like the 
the bears becoming habituated definitely could have a negative impact on the bear because we know that when bears who are habituated tend to not be afraid of campsites and a lot of folks don't realize that bears who can't be trained back into the wild get put down absolutely if you think about human nature that's not something we can ask people not to do wildlife are captivating for us and seeing them in their natural landscape you know on a beautiful fall day it, it would be hard to not want to stop and to enjoy that so i absolutely am not <laughs> advocating that you know we shouldn't stop and look at wildlife ever right i mean that's why we're there is to see mm-hmm. those wildlife. We are disappointed when we don't get to see them. Mm-hmm. Are there any quirky findings that you have? Certain trails are more popular or less popular because of something or other? Yes, um, I, and I'll give you an example. It's not necessarily uh, related to trails, but it's kind of counterintuitive to what you, you might expect, and it's the way people behave when other people are around. So some research has found that People, when they are engaged and around a larger group of other people, tend to stick closer to those other people and not disperse across the landscape. So think like an op- a big open field. If there's a lot of people in that area, people stay closer to those people. If there's fewer people, people tend to disperse more across that landscape. And that's kind of counterintuitive because you would think, oh, if there's a lot of people in an area, you'll want to go further to get away from those people. But... It's actually the opposite. People tend to cluster around those other people to kind of see what they're looking at and what they're doing. Interesting. It's like, you know, we're animals too, and that's like herd behavior. Absolutely. You know, when I travel to natural areas in other parts of the country, I often see a list of rules or do's and don'ts, you know, as you're as you're entering that kind of space. But in Wyoming, we have so much more access to wide open spaces and wild spaces with very little signage or instruction. What do's or don'ts do you think we should follow no matter where we are? Like it shouldn't even have to be put on a sign. I really like this question. And I want to focus on the positive because I think there's something that we can do as opposed to not do anywhere we go. And that is summed up in one word in my opinion, and that's respect. So as you mentioned, rules and regulations in areas can be different from place to place. So respecting rules and regulations no matter where you go. If there are no rules and regulations posted, just acting in ways that are going to respect the landscape and wildlife. So that um, could include if you're moving cross country where there are no trails, trying to travel on durable surfaces, so traveling on exposed bedrock or really resilient grass where possible, respecting wildlife, and respecting other people. So are there any specific impacts that we need to be aware of and maybe be more mindful as we're out and about? I'll give you my absolute favorite answer to most recreation ecology questions, and the answer is it depends. It depends on the type of recreation people are engaging in. So there are some landscapes like desert ecosystems, the alpine that are particularly fragile and vulnerable, and then very, very wet ecosystems too. So during mud season, the landscape is a lot more fragile than it is other times of year because we have new things that are growing and then soil that is, hopefully if we've had a a good winter, wet. 
So within each type of recreation activity and recreation group, you have people that are novice and people that are expert. And those different types and abilities of recreators are going to have different levels of impact too. So that's another component. So I hesitate to make recommendations like for each type of recreator as a whole, because that's that's not how it works. So I'm gonna so, I'm gonna challenge you with the two that I do most. <laughs> so just like random little hikes up on the mountain where you're not necessarily on a trail, where you're just kind of following a drainage and then crossing over and then making a little loop. Is it okay to to walk in areas that aren't trailed? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, there are groups of recreationists think about like hunters do that all the time. That's kind of the basis of of what they're doing. They might be following a game trail, but more often than not, they're moving across country. And if you don't have tons of people doing it in the same space, it isn't necessarily hugely impactful, but there are things that you can be looking out for to make it even less impactful. So if you have um, a more durable or a harder surface, so if there are like, rock outcroppings or if there are um, grassy areas are more resistant and resilient to to damage than, than say, like woody forbs. So think like wildflowers and shrubs. And so what about um, kayaking? So that's a good one. I think the biggest thing with kayaking is making sure that you're cleaning off your boat properly between, like when you move between bodies of water. And I noticed this summer a lot more check stations for that. So I think there's an increased um, effort to make sure that people realize that, yeah, paddle boards and kayaks specifically are vehicles on uh, a waterway as well and need to you need to make sure you're cleaning them between locations. Right. And honestly, I had seen those signs for years in Texas and here in Wyoming about uh, zebra mussels. And I always felt like maybe they were exaggerating a little bit because I never saw a single zebra mussel or any of that. And then I can't remember who I spoke to, but it became clear to me that you're not looking for big old, like a big old mussel stuck to your boat. It's actually so tiny, you might not even see it and you just have to rinse it out. And to me, that's just a good example of how important signage and public education is translating that scientific knowledge to somebody you know on the signage it shows the the zebra mussels i remember they were black and white but that's not what i was looking for so when i think of recreation in wyoming i imagine like different groups of people so i'm going to give you a rapid fire of who i imagine in my mind is recreating in wyoming and see if you can give us a couple of tips for each of those groups. Are you up for it? I'm up for it. <laughs> okay, so what about campers, whether it's tent or RV camping? What do we need to think about when we camp? So we want to camp in designated spots when they're available um, to try to keep those undesignated spots from popping up and impacts from spreading. That's pretty important. Respecting those fire restrictions, they're there for a reason. And thinking about things like not just, you know, building the camp ring, but if you're starting your car over dry grass, you can start a fire that way. So thinking very carefully about how and where you're parking your vehicles if you aren't using those designated camping spots. Can we talk about bathrooms real quick? Yeah. What should be our low impact protocol for using the bathroom outdoors when there's not really a bathroom? <laughs> 
it's going to depend on the landscape. So different landscapes can tolerate the presence of waste better than others. So if you're in a, a kind of a lower elevation forested ecosystem, those are pretty good at turning over materials. You think leaf litter is on the ground and that degrades and is incorporated into the soil structure. So in a forest, you want to dig a six inch cat hole away from a trail or stream as far as you can get away from a trailer's first stream and leave the waste, preferably only the waste, and pack out toilet paper if you want to use it, and then cover that. If you're in a more arid ecosystem or an alpine ecosystem, you want to actually try to pack it out if you can. And there are some waste disposal systems that are uh, available. They're called wag bags for specifically solid waste. That's the best thing to do in that ecosystem. That's not necessarily always practical if you don't have something with you to carry it out, and it's definitely not palatable for many people, but that right. is what the best practice is. What do hunters need to think of? Hunters are actually usually usually some of the least impactful folks on the landscape. They're usually very conservation-oriented and obviously don't want to leave a whole lot of trace of themselves if they're stalking an animal. One of the the things that I hear a lot from folks is have, making sure hunters are picking up their shells if they can, so not leaving that on the landscape for others to see and find. I recently visited a, a bird shelter or a bird rehab place, and the director there was talking about a lot of birds getting poisoned with lead. Yeah, the lead shot is, is a concern, definitely. Well, you already told us about kayakers and canoers. We just need to make sure we rinse our boat off, even if we don't see anything. Just rinse that sucker off. Yep. What about what about dog owners? I see a lot of folks out with their dogs. Yep. So the biggest issues with dog owners are particularly in areas where a lot of people are using the same spaces. Cleaning up after the dog. You hear a lot of people who are using uh, spaces where dogs are allowed grumbling about all of the dog poop everywhere. So that's a big one. And, you know, when your dog is running off leash, I have a dog, we love to let her run off leash. Um, So that's not always possible. But when you're able to, especially if it's on a trail, being a good steward and picking up that after your dog on the trail. What about horse riders? Horse riders, just because a horse is a, a larger animal. They have a little more heft and more weight. The same as with, you know, mountain bikers and um, OHV users thinking about that heavier animal or vehicle does more damage, especially when it's muddy. So staying off of trails or away from muddy areas, if at all possible. Like if you're using the horse as transport or if you're working on that horse, like that's a kind of a different situation. But if you're using it for recreation, try to utilize areas you know are going to be dry, especially if those trails are multi-use because those trails become very difficult for folks like hikers to walk on when they get rutted out by bikers or horseback riders. Mud changes everything. It does. Well, we've talked a lot about the impact that we have on the natural world, but I know you also study how nature impacts us as humans. Can you talk a little bit about that? So there's a lot of research that um, has been done on how beneficial it is to spend time outside. So actual health benefits 
our experiences every time we go out and enjoy whether it's we're hiking on a trail whether you know you're riding your horse across a beautiful landscape those influence our future actions and choices so they influence how and where we recreate and then they can even influence things like how we vote to protect places that we value those experiences are really influential in our future patterns yeah, I can definitely see the the health benefits, but also, you know, if you're not out using the national parks, you might not understand how devastating it is if, for funding to get cut from them. Yes. So getting more people access to have those experiences is really important for continued protection and also for those people to enjoy and experience the benefits of being outside and being in nature as well the most important factor in whether and how you recreate as an adult is your experiences as a young child. So getting kids out into nature and here in Wyoming, like that's not hard to do. I think most kids here are exposed to nature in some form or another. But, you know, if you have a kid in inner city Chicago who doesn't have a national park or a protected area or much green space around them, that can be a lot more challenging. Often getting to a place to recreate can be a huge challenge. Recreation opportunities are not equally available to everyone. And there are many people who don't feel welcome in the outdoors, especially people of color. Keeping that in mind and doing what we can to make those around us feel welcome in the outdoors is really, really important, especially as we're seeing issues of overuse in many areas. So we're seeing issues of capacity in many parks and protected areas and making sure that recreation spaces, even as they're becoming more crowded, are a welcome space for all people is really, really important. There is room for everyone outdoors, for everyone to recreate in the ways that resonate with them. I so agree with you. And I follow a lot of folks online, especially on Instagram, who are really trying to focus on diversifying the outdoors. That's the hashtag that's going around. And being a, you know, bigger person myself, like not just in soul, but in body. <laughs> I know that um there's also been some some work in that area. You know, you don't have to look a certain way. Your, your body doesn't have to be a certain way for you to enjoy the outdoors, for you to hike, for you to camp, for you to do all those outdoor things, and, and you also belong there. I love that change that we're going through right now in our culture. I do too, and I, I think you mentioned Instagram. That platform in particular has been a very good platform for advocating for what that change can and should look like. Right. I'm a big believer of giving children also the opportunity to spend as much time outdoors as possible, and I know you're a mom. How do you encourage responsibility in the outdoors when there's so much enthusiasm for wildflowers and picking up every rock? And How do we encourage Absolutely. responsibility but not squash that love for the outdoors? I tell you what I do with my own daughter. And that's when we're outside, definitely like ha letting her have that sensory experience is really important. So we do encourage her to touch different things around her, but we try to encourage her to leave things there. So, I mean, she might pick up a stick or a rock and that's kind of inevitable, but letting her know, you know, it might be really fun for you to pick that flower, but think about all the other people who are out here who might want to enjoy that flower too. So let's sit here and enjoy it for a while, but let's leave it for them. And we, we try to encourage that. 
And then there are other behaviors too, um, other things that you can harvest, you know, when you're on the national forest and in some national parks, even you can harvest berries and there are things that you can pick and take. So trying to teach her what we can take and what we'll leave for others. And when we're out in our local neck of the woods here, picking raspberries when they're in season, we don't pick all of them. We leave some for the birds and some for other people to come along and have too. So that's kind of how I go about it. And I don't necessarily know that there's a right or wrong way. So a lot about culture is important in how we engage with the resources around us too. What do you mean? Can you say more about that? Specifically thinking of folks with indigenous backgrounds, and this is subsistence on the land has been an important part of the culture of indigenous people. And that taking responsibly is a really important part of the culture. So it's important to understand that and that different groups interact with and use the land in different ways. It means something different to them. Mm -hmm. Well, I have some closing questions that I ask all of my guests. One is, what is something that people who are just zipping, driving through Wyoming may not realize? Oh, that's such a good question. I think if they're zipping through Wyoming, they're probably taking like I-80 or I-90. There's so much more to Wyoming than what you can see from the the interstate. If you have the time, travel on the back roads. Don't take I-80. Don't take I-90 and you're going to get a very different impression of Wyoming. Yeah, I totally agree. What's the hardest thing about living in Wyoming now that you've been here for a year? I think it's the hardest thing, but it's also kind of the most charming and my favorite thing. It's just the fact that there's not a lot else around you. There's not a lot going on. And that, you know, in a time like right now where we're in a global pandemic can feel very isolating when it's hard to, to connect with the people, even when you're in a town in an area like Laramie, where I live. Um, so that can be challenging, but that's also one of my favorite things about Wyoming <laughs> is that there is so much space and so much just this beautiful, vast landscape. And my last question is, what do you love most about Wyoming or living in Wyoming? Yeah, as um, an avid recreationist myself, the open space here is absolutely incredible. And it's definitely one of the most unique places in, in the United States in terms of just landscape, in terms of people, in terms of the community that you find here. And it's, it's a very special place. I agree. Okay, well, thank you so much, Abby. It's been such a good conversation and so eye-opening. Yeah. And I wish you the very best in all your work. I'm going to put up onto the website, I'm going to put a link so people can go on and read your articles and follow your work, because I think it's really fascinating. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Abby gave us some great information, and now I'd like to share a few of my own personal observations of Wyoming outdoor recreation culture and a little bit about our laws. Wyoming is almost evenly split between public land and private land, and sometimes it can be hard to know the difference, like how do we know if we're on public or private land when we're out there? Well, many landowners post no trespassing or no hunting or no fishing signs along the fence but it's important to know that they are not obligated to do so. The responsibility actually lies with us to figure out if we're on public or private land. 
And even though you may think, ah, this is the middle of nowhere, they'll never notice. Don't do it. By the time you're untangling your pant leg from a barbed wire fence that you're trying to cross, somebody will be talking about you at the local cafe and very soon you may have an upset landowner on your hands. Apart from being illegal, in Wyoming, it's considered very disrespectful to go onto private land without permission. And it's not just the land, it's also the water. So creeks, for example, while the water itself is public, the land under the water may be private, which basically makes the creek private unless it's deep enough to boat or float on through, which means you can't even drop an anchor as you boat through or stop on shore. This same logic applies to hunting, hiking, and biking on land, too. So unless you know the locals, just stick to the National Forests and Bureau of Land Management areas. You can easily pick up a map of them from one of their offices or even ask them to mail it to you. My recommendation is that if you're driving through and see one of their offices, just stop by. They're super helpful. They have maps and tons of information to share that will really enrich your trip. This includes specific maps for the over 600 miles of ATV trails we have in Wyoming. It's important to stay on those trails. I know it's really tempting to explore and create new paths on ATVs. Don't do it. As we learned from Abby, new paths can cause damage to the land, to vegetation, and ultimately to wildlife, especially in the wetter months where vehicles really create deep ruts. And it's also illegal. Now, having scared you just a little, if you've never ridden on an ATV, it can be a ton of fun and it can help you cover a lot of land in just a few hours. You can easily rent one to try it out or even better, hire a guide to take you to all of those hidden gems that they'll know about. I'll have links on the website with details and rules on ATV use in Wyoming. The Wyoming Office of Tourism offers three important ways that we can enjoy natural spaces responsibly, which they call their Why Responsibly campaign. The first way is to plan ahead. In our amazing state, we have so many areas that are overpopulated with tourism, but then also these hidden gems that are greatly underutilized. So if you plan ahead, you can catch that bucket list view, hello, Old Faithful, but also enjoy some quieter, off-the-beaten-path experiences. Planning ahead also means being ready, ready with water, food, gear, to match the weather conditions. It is not uncommon for there to be a 30-plus degree difference between the valley and the mountains, so prepare accordingly. A second point is to keep it clean. We all know the trash-in, trash-out concept, that doesn't only apply to camping. Whenever you're hiking or even driving through scenic areas, please bring your own trash bags and pack out all trash, including pet waste, and even follow Abby's etiquette of pooping in the wild. The third way is to be fire aware. Educate yourself, mind all fire bans, use a fire ring, and be careful to tend your fire until it's completely out or douse it before you leave. That takes us to today's dot on the map, which is Wapiti, Wyoming. Wapiti is on the ancestral lands of the Crow and Cheyenne people. It's actually not a town. It's an unincorporated area. It's not even a very wide spot on the road. And you'll find it between Cody and the entrance to Yellowstone. Along that drive, you can get gas, enjoy a beer on the patio, get information on local trails, 
see historic sites, and even enjoy a roadside attraction. When you see the sign for Wapiti, you'll zoom past a post office and you'll think, wait, it's all over. But Wapiti is actually the nine-mile stretch between there and the Shoshone National Forest. First, do yourself a favor and stop at the historic Wapiti Lodge. It'll be on the right. It has amazing mountain views for both from inside the bar as well as on the patio if the weather is nice. Then comes the red barn on your left. It may not seem like that much, but it's actually your last chance to get gas at a reasonable price before you get to the park. If you wait to gas up in the park, you will definitely be paying premium prices and you'll probably have to wait in line. So do yourself a favor and stop at the red barn, gas up, grab some snacks for the road, and just take a minute because from there you'll see the famous Smith Mansion in the distance. The Smith Mansion is actually a handmade five and a half level all wood structure. Self-taught architect Lee Smith made it from scrap wood and he started it as a family home, then became obsessed with adding on to it and ended up with what looks like a fantastical building. It reminds me of a Viking great hall kind of mixed with a giant wooden boat. It absolutely consumed him for the rest of his life, and sadly he died from a fall off the top story. The Smith Mansion has been empty for years, and it's not open to the public. It's definitely not safe to get anywhere inside of it. So just stay in your car and enjoy looking at it from the road where you can get some really great pictures of it. Continue on about ten and a half miles, and on the right, you will arrive at the Wapiti Way Station. It's just inside the National Forest. There you will find a really great clean bathroom and nice folks to answer your questions if you get there during the day. And they can give you maps and suggestions for hikes and camping before you even enter Yellowstone. From there you can also see the historic Wapiti Ranger Station. It's an important one because it was the first federally funded ranger station in the U.S., which was built in 1909 and is still in use. And that's about it for Wapiti, Wyoming. Except, do you know what the word Wapiti means? Well, that takes us to the Wyoming wildlife segment. Did you recognize that sound? It was a Wapiti. The word Wapiti is either Cree or Shawnee for white rump, which if you've ever seen an elk, you know why. The fact that the word Wapiti originates with eastern tribes tells us that elk once had a much bigger range than what they have now. Today we think of elk as being an animal of the American West, but actually elk's historic range includes almost all of Canada, the U.S., and well into Mexico. Of the six elk species on the American continent, two are now extinct, but four still remain. The Rocky Mountain elk is what we have here in Wyoming, and we have them in the mountains, in the plains, and even a herd of rare desert elk that I really want to see. Here in the Bighorns, I've typically seen great huge herds of them, but far off the road, unlike deer. So if you see a herd far away that looks kind of like deer, it's probably elk. If you want to see some elk up close, you're pretty much guaranteed to see them if you go to Mammoth Hot Springs in Yellowstone Park in the summer, or in the winter, go to the National Elk Refuge outside of Jackson, because that's where 
a huge herd of them are fed through the winter. Now, just a side note on this elk refuge. In December of 2019, just before the world went sideways, the Fish and Wildlife Service announced what they call a step-down program. And this is to reduce the number of elk wintering over at the refuge from over 7,000 to 5,000 or less. This may sound harsh, but it's actually done to encourage natural elk feeding behavior and to reduce the chances of chronic wasting disease in the Jackson elk herd. Like deer, elk are cervids, but they are much, much larger, growing up to nine feet tall, including their antlers, and weighing over a thousand pounds. That's half a ton. And here are some other interesting facts about elk. These huge animals can run up to 40 miles an hour and jump almost their own height, like eight feet off the ground. During their growing season, sunshine triggers testosterone, which causes them to add up to an inch of antler in a single day. Like deer, bull elk shed and regrow these huge antlers every year. And if you're lucky, you can even see those sheds when you go on a hike or a walk in the forest. During their fall rutting season, they're known to make a very unique bugling sound as part of their mating ritual. So now that we know what it's about, let's listen to that sound again. So that bugles us right out of my comeback episode of Wyoming, my 307. Those of you thinking, wait, she said she was revamping the podcast. Did she even change anything? Well, not much. The travel restrictions at the height of the pandemic really made me reconsider the -the out-of-the-box segment. That was where I highlighted one community in a neighboring state. I am committed to telling you about places that I have personally visited, because, you know, anybody can Google up a town. So I'm saving my travel dollars and my travel time to spend right here in Wyoming for this podcast. My other segments remain the same to interview a diversity of Wyoming voices. So thank you very much, Abby. To highlight one dot on the Wyoming map, even little bitty places like Wapiti. And to talk about Wyoming wildlife, like the wily Wapiti or Rocky Mountain elk. So until next time, check out the show notes on the website, wyomingmy307.blogspot.com. If you have questions or suggestions, email wyomingmy307 at gmail.com. And please follow along on Instagram at wyomingmy307, all one word. Happy trails to you until we meet again.